Our scripture reading for today is from the Gospel according to John, chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. Listen now for the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The word of the Lord. Oh, it's weird. <laughs> Let me try again. Lord be with you. Thank you. Hey, welcome. It's great to see everyone uh, to our outdoor service. Um, it's a little different. There's no slides, so you're going to have to pay a little more attention, I think, today. Um, and those of you watching on Zoom, um, I can't see you. Normally I have my laptop, so I can kind of see you, but I, I hope uh, this is okay for you. Uh, please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this day that you have made and that we can be together uh, outdoors and to be all together, so many of us, and to see each other's faces, to be uh, together in the body. And God, now I ask that in the hearing of your word, 
uh, we would hear from you. And hearing from you, God, help us to see you and to obey you and to love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you heard, this is now the uh, third time that Jesus has appeared to his disciples after the resurrection. Today is also the fifth Sunday of Eastertide. We've seen so far about Mary Magdalene, who was the first to see the risen Christ and the first to testify, I have seen the Lord. We've also heard about Cleopas and Mary, who declared he has risen indeed. And last week, we heard about Thomas, who proclaimed, my Lord and my God. And I said last week that Thomas's confession is the climax and the conclusion to the Gospel of John. And it is. The Gospel could have ended with those words. Because the Gospel began with the declaration that Jesus is the eternal Word of God, and it concluded with Thomas's words, the unbeliever's words, who tells us that Jesus is indeed Lord and God. So today's reading is really extra. It's an epilogue to the Gospel. But, as it's been pointed out, like a Marvel Studios superhero movie post credit scene, we want to pay attention to this story because it has something significant to reveal to us. The setup is that after the second encounter with Jesus behind closed doors in Jerusalem, a band of disciples have left there and are back in the more familiar lands of Galilee. It's not stated why they are there, but at least some of them are no longer behind closed doors. Like us, some of them have moved from inside to outside. And despite Peter's previous three denials of Jesus, he's still clearly the leader of this band of disciples because when he decides to go fishing, the others follow him. Now, along with Peter, you will notice that two other disciples are given names. Nathaniel and Thomas. The Gospel of John highlights these three names because these three disciples have each made a definitive declaration about the identity of Jesus. Nathaniel is first told about Jesus back in chapter 1, and he expressed skepticism about him. He said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Really? The Messiah is going to come from there? But then after he met Jesus and he had the briefest of conversations with him, Nathaniel made the confession, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Nathaniel also happens to be from Cana, reminding us of the wedding where Jesus first turned water into wine. It was the first of his signs and his disciples began to believe in him. That is, they began to believe that he is the Son of God, the King of Israel. Later in chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000 and everyone loves him. But then Jesus says things like he is the bread of life and that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood. And many of the disciples begin to walk away from him. It makes a lot of sense. If that were us, we'd say, yeah, darn right. You don't want to have anything to do with eating someone's flesh or blood. But Peter said, where would we go? And added the confession, 
You are the Holy One of God. It's a moment of great faith for him, but as you know, not much later, he will vehemently deny three times that he even knows who Jesus is. And last week, you'll recall that Thomas, the one who did not believe, the one who insisted that he would never believe, unless he got to poke around the wounds of Jesus, made the greatest confession of them all, my Lord and my God. So these three named disciples, at different points in the Gospel of John, in their unique ways, with uncertainty about their faith, uncertain about their relationship with Jesus and who Jesus is. And yet, Thomas the unbeliever says, my Lord and my God. Peter, the triple denier, says, you are the Holy One of God. And Nathaniel, the skeptic, says, <coughs> you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Despite the inconsistencies of their faith, they had moments where they truly recognized Jesus for who he is. That's good news. And that gives us hope that in our own inconsistencies, we too might recognize Jesus for who he truly is. Now, in addition to these three named disciples, we are told that there were several others. The sons of Zebedee, that is John and James, and two others that are simply unidentified. That makes for a total of seven disciples. It's seven, which means that not all the 11 of the original 12 disciples are there. And Nathaniel, we know, of course, is not one of the original 12. It suggests that this is not some special group, not some set of special super disciples. I think like in any large group of people, you have smaller groups of people within who naturally connect better with one another. Just as you have some closer friends in the church based on some shared interests like football or poetry, this is probably just a group of guys who happen to be better friends. Maybe a group bonded over their shared interest in fishing or their childhood friends. So it's what I think of as an ordinary group of disciples, maybe something like one of our FGs. However, in the Bible, and in the Gospel of John in particular, numbers often have symbolic significance. And seven, as you know, is considered the number of completion, as in the seven days of the original creation. In the Gospel of John, it's not seven that's so important, but the number eight. Because the number eight represents the new creation. It signifies the new beginning. Jesus rose on a Sunday, the eighth day. And last week, Jesus appeared to his disciples twice, eight days apart. John was careful to point out that detail. Instead of saying something like, he came about a week later or a week later, he says he came eight days later. Eight is the new seven. So the seven disciples together tells us that they are part of the old creation and that what might have been complete before is now incomplete in light of the new creation. Something or someone is missing. That this is the case is evident in their lack of success as they fish. These are veteran fishermen. At least four of them fish their entire lives. And yet as they return to their old livelihood, 
They catch nothing all night. But we are told as the light breaks, like on that first Easter dawn morning, an eighth person, someone on the shore the disciples failed to recognize once again, tells them to cast their net on the right side and that they would find fish there. I don't know a whole lot about fishing, but this just doesn't make any sense to me. They've been fishing all night, and I can't imagine that they were only tossing their nets on the left side of the boat, right? You would think that they'd be casting that all over. It's not like this is, um, I don't know, like the Kentucky Derby where you, you're just making a left turn the whole time, right? Why not toss the net left, right, front, back, everywhere? So why should there be fish all of a sudden on the right side of the boat? And why would these guys listen to a stranger giving such absurd advice? Maybe they were just humoring the stranger, but they toss their nets to the right side, and when they do, they catch so much they can't even haul the nets in. As John tells the story, the disciples once again do not recognize that it is Jesus. They're all probably distracted by the enormous catch of fish, and they're so distracted they fail to see Jesus. But one disciple, the beloved disciple, who tradition tells us is John, the son of Zebedee, recognizes him. And as I said last week, the best thing you can do when you are unbelieving or you can't see Jesus is to hang around those who are more spiritually sensitive and who can point out Jesus to you. That's what the beloved disciples did for Peter and the others. He sees the large catch of fish, but that it's pointing to something greater. And he tells Peter, it is the Lord. He tells Peter, it is the Lord. He has this deference toward Peter, which we can see earlier on Easter morning. You might remember when the disciples were first heard about Jesus's body missing in the tomb by the women. The beloved disciple and Peter ran to the tomb to see if it was true. And the beloved disciple got to the tomb first, but he waited until Peter got there and let Peter go in first to check it out. Peter is probably older and he's a recognized leader of the bunch. And so the beloved disciple once again defers to him and says, it is the Lord. Now Peter hears that it's Jesus and he puts on some clothes because he's been stripped for work. To be clear, he wasn't fishing naked or anything like that. He just took off his shirt probably working. It's kind of like, you know, when you're on Zoom, you're not wearing pants or you're in your pajamas, right? Same idea. And so now that he's about to see Jesus in person, he's got to put on some clothes to be presentable, to be more respectful of his rabbi. But in his unbridled enthusiasm, he can't wait to bring the boat ashore with the others and the fish, and he just, just jumps in and swims to shore. The others soon arrive with the fish, and they see that Jesus already has fish cooking on a charcoal fire. The charcoal fire is, again, another small detail that tells me that Jesus has been waiting for them, that he's had the fire going for a while, and points again to his gracious and loving care for his disciples. Then even though he already has fish, 
he tells them to bring some of the fish which they have caught. And before they can respond, as a group, Peter, by himself, gets on the boat and brings not some of the fish, just a few fish to eat, but he brings the entire haul of 153 fish. Again, just another interesting detail. John could have said there was a lot of fish, or there was about 150. But he says there were 153 large fish. He's deliberately recording this number, and we know that numbers have deeper meanings. Now, over the centuries, many people have tried to find the symbolic or allegorical significance behind this number, 153. It's not obvious, right? It's not like a number like 12 or 7 or 3 or 8 that, you know, we understand to have some meaning. 153. No one really knows what it means. People have proposed all kinds of theories and ideas, and none have proved convincing. But the one that I find most interesting is the one that was offered by St. Augustine, who gave a mathematical answer. He noted that 153 happens to be the sum of all the numbers between 1 and 17. So if you add 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 all the way to 17, you end up with 153. And he suggested that this points to the inclusivity or the completeness of the kingdom of God, that all would be included. Of course, it could also be that there is no hidden meaning behind this number. And that John is simply telling us how many fish there were, right? It's like they're so shocked by how many fish they caught, they counted them, right? It's a detail that they would remember, much like today. I know some of you are counting how many people are here today because this is our first time together and you want to know exactly how many people showed up. Well, that's our reading today. Let me make this reflection with you. I know that you're all familiar with uh, Descartes' dictum, I think, therefore I am. It's a foundational statement in Western philosophy. It's fine as far as it goes. But as I said last week, the Christian faith is more relational than it is reasonable. It is more relational than it is reasonable. Rather than I think, therefore I am, it's closer to the truth for the Christians to say, I eat, therefore I am. Or perhaps I should go with, I eat with you, therefore I am. Again and again throughout the Gospels, Jesus is eating with others. In the Gospel of Luke, for example, Jesus basically goes from one dinner party to another. And I mentioned last week that the meal that Jesus shares with the disciples at Emmaus was notably, according to one scholar, the eighth meal he shares in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is criticized and creates scandal because when it comes to eating, he's completely indiscriminate. He'll share a meal with anyone and everyone, and you are not supposed to do that. You're only supposed to eat 
with certain people, people within your group, people who are holy, people who can advance your career. But whether it's a huge crowd of 5,000 or 4,000, or whether it's an invitation from the Pharisees or the tax collectors, or whether it's an intimate dinner with his friends like Mary and Martha and Lazarus, Jesus is at table with anyone and everyone. Cornelius Anthony Van Pearson, in his book, Him Again, argues that the people of Israel discovered God through their experiences. God led them out of Egypt. God delivered them through the Red Sea. God fed them in the wilderness. With each encounter, they inductively arrived at the understanding that God repeatedly acts to save his people. And it was out of this recurring pattern of experiences that they came to understand that God, that the name of God, Yahweh, I am who I am. The repeatedly saving God, whose name is a form of the verb to be, captured the essence of this repeated encounter. And so he suggests that God's name means something like him again. I think that's what the disciples experienced with Jesus. It's him again. He wants to eat with us again. And it's in the sharing of the meal, in the breaking of the bread together, that his disciples recognize him again. Jesus said back in chapter 1, come and see. And then later he said, come and learn of me. And then still later, come and rest. And now he tells them, come and have breakfast. He had invited his disciples to be with him to experience him again and again. And importantly, not only does he eat with everyone, he feeds everyone. Jesus would certainly agree with the statement, I think, I eat with you, therefore I am. But I think he would also add, I am, therefore I feed. Just as God fed his people with manna for 40 years in the desert, so Jesus is the bread that has come down from heaven. And Jesus said, whoever comes to me shall never, shall never hunger. Jesus is here obviously talking about something more than physical hunger, that he and he alone can satisfy the deepest hunger and longings in our hearts, the hunger for, for belonging, for fellowship, for meaning, for love. And the irony is that many of us use food instead to satisfy those deepest hungers. For example, most of you know what it's like to gain weight because of emotional eating. Perhaps in college you struggled with or are still struggling with that freshman 15. Can I tell you, I learned um, a great new word this week. I love when I get to learn new words. It's a German word that I'm going to at least slightly mispronounce. It's Kummerspeck. As I understand it, it's a compound noun referring to the weight one gains through emotional eating. Kummer refers to emotional pain, worry, sorrow, or anxiety. And Speck refers, interestingly enough, to pork fat. Technically speaking, the word refers to the fat itself, to the weight that you gain, and not the food you eat to become fat. So it's 
technically should be translated as grief fat, the weight that you gain through emotional eating. However, many translators go with grief bacon. I, I, just, I just love that, grief bacon. Now, my choice of emotional eating would probably be a pint of Halo Pub chocolate ice cream or a bag of all-dressed Ruffles potato chips. But I love this idea, this image of overeating bacon in one's grief. It reminds me of Korean dramas where people go to eat grilled pork belly samgyeopsal and drink soju whenever they're having a hard time. Grief bacon. I know that for most of us, we've been incredibly fortunate that we have not really struggled with hunger or food security even during this pandemic. In fact, the greater problem has been kumir speck, overeating and weight gain. In a recent survey conducted by the American Psychological Association, 42% of adults reported undesired weight gain due to COVID-19 with an average increase of 29 pounds. The survey also noted that 18% indicated an undesired weight loss. That means that 60% of Americans surveyed experienced some sort of undesired weight fluctuation. I can count myself among them because at one point during the pandemic, I had gained more than a few pounds, <laughs> at least some of which I can attribute to grief bacon. Although, I, as you know, I don't get to eat nearly as much bacon as I'd like. In light of this experience, Jesus' invitation to have breakfast with him is a counter to this sort of eating. He knows that there is a hunger that we cannot satisfy no matter how much bacon we consume. And Jesus invites us to share a meal to satisfy that deeper longing in the fellowship of the meal that we have with him. It's not just the food, right? I mean, it's, it's a great bonus when the food is great. But the sharing of the meal, it's about the fellowship and what that meal represents. I'm certain that at this moment that the disciples must have felt pretty terrible. They had all abandoned Jesus not too long ago during his arrest, during his crucifixion. They're still probably ashamed of their behavior. I can imagine they would all want to ask for forgiveness, especially Peter. But notice here that Jesus does not bring any of that up, not directly. In fact, I, I think here what Jesus is doing, it's like he's channeling every Asian mother's heart. Right? You know what I'm talking about. Whenever your mom or your mother-in-law or your wife says, come and eat, they're not saying it's time to replenish your caloric needs for the day. Rather, in a culture that does not usually communicate emotions directly, it's their way of saying, I love you or I forgive you. And even occasionally, I'm sorry, depending on the context. I can tell you that whenever my wife has an argument with me or is disappointed with me or has been hurt by me or the kids, she will say, come and eat. It's her cold phrase for, I'm still mad at you 
and it may take a long, long time for me to forgive you, but I still love you, and I know that you can't cook for yourself, and so I'm still going to feed you. That's come and eat. I've mentioned this before, but let me remind you again. We rightly celebrate the Last Supper to remind us of Jesus' death and sacrifice, which makes the forgiveness of sins possible and eternal life possible. For as long as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim once again the saving death of our Savior until he comes again. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, and we do in remembrance of him. In fact, I know that the thing that many of you missed the most about worship was not the sermon and not even the praise time, but it was communion. It's the communion. A little sip of wine and a little piece of rice cracker may not be very fulfilling physically, but when received in faith, it has satisfied you, it has comforted you, it has brought you incredible satisfaction. And I'm looking forward to that time as our waiting for one another comes to a close and we can all gather together and once again eat and drink together and celebrate communion. That celebration of communion is vital for our lives. But I want to say to you, so is the first breakfast. It's not just the Last Supper, but also here, the first breakfast. If we remember that the cross makes forgiveness possible in the Last Supper, we can also remember and should remember that the resurrected life is to be lived in the morning meal. We can share meals that remember not only Jesus' death whenever we drink and break bread, but we can also remember whenever we eat fish and break bread together, as these disciples did. I, I'm not suggesting that we start a new culinary trend where we have grilled fish sandwiches for breakfast, but rather I'm encouraging you to begin to share meals, to feed one another, to praise God for our resurrected life now, in Jesus Christ. You know, this is one of my hopes for the students who take communion class. The students are permitted to take communion when they're younger, but I encourage them to wait until confirmation Sunday after they have made their confession and to take that confession together with that communion so that that moment might be ingrained into their memories forever. So that when their life gets hard, in the days to come, or their faith begins to crumble, that they will remember that Jesus fed them and that he will continue to feed them, and that they will remember that the table is large enough even to hold their doubts and their unbelief, and to also remember that they are part of a community that will feed them not only in the Last Supper, but in the first morning breakfast of the day. You know, this scene for me, this is just really one of my favorite scenes in the entire Bible because it reveals to me this, this incredible graciousness, this gentleness, this humbleness 
of Jesus. I mean, it's, it's actually very shocking to see that Jesus would spend the last few days on earth in his resurrected body cooking breakfast for his unworthy disciples. He wants to spend the last few days on earth hanging out and eating with his disciples. It's his choice. The disciples went fishing that morning and it was the last thing on their minds that they would meet Jesus. They probably thought they're just going to fish all week and then maybe go back to Jerusalem on Sunday and maybe they'll see Jesus during worship. Instead, Jesus shows up where they are. In verse 1 and in verse 14, at the beginning and at the end, it says that Jesus revealed himself. He comes and he decides. He reveals himself when he wants to. And the good news, as we have seen again and again, is that Jesus will reveal himself not when we are at our strongest and most, uh, at the greatest moments of our faith, but in our sorrow, in our unbelief, in our fear, in our work, in our failures. That's sovereign grace. Jesus comes not only when we're having a Bible study like the disciples did at Emmaus, not only when we are in a prayer meeting like the disciples on Pentecost. He meets us as we live the resurrected life in ordinary eating and sharing and fellowship. Where two or three or seven or eight are gathered in his name, whether it's in a prayer meeting or on a fishing trip, wherever we may be, Jesus promises to be there. We just need one another, or maybe just one of us, to be able to see and point out, it is the Lord. So as the pandemic ceases, and as you are able, I encourage you to invite one another indiscriminately for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Let's begin to reopen our homes Go to the beach or a park or a restaurant, inviting one another. Come and have breakfast. This is the resurrected life. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you once again for your presence with us. We thank you for always feeding us. And we look forward to sharing communion with one another once again. And we look forward to sharing breakfast with one another once again. In the sharing of such meals, we ask, let your presence be made manifest and seeing help us to point to others, it is the Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.